Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. A few nights ago, um, I spoke about trust and uh, about various strategies that one can use in uh, in practice and um, to trust your own inner experience. Um, and uh, tonight, I I want to. Um, talk not so much about the various strategies, but just um, seeing that there are many views that we can have uh, that we shouldn't necessarily trust, but to get uh, beyond the views. <clears throat> you know, in the, uh, in the Metta Sutta where it says, uh, by not holding to fixed views, uh, one is not uh, born again into this world. And I wanted to explore um, this idea of not holding to fixed views, how you can get in touch with the place to rest in and really trust when we um, see through whatever views we, we might be holding on to. I want to uh, start by reading a favorite passage of mine from Zen Mind Beginner's Mind. <clears throat> as we explore one of these uh, views. This is uh, Suzuki Roshi saying, In our scriptures, it is said that there are four kinds of horses, excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The best horse will run slow and fast, right and left at the driver's will, before it sees the shadow of the whip. The second best will run as well as the first one does just before the whip reaches its skin. The third will run when it feels pain on its body. The fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn how to run. When we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. And if it's impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. That is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and of practice. You may think that when you sit in meditation, you'll find out whether you're one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. Here, however, there is a misunderstanding of practice. If you think the aim of practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you will have a big problem. This is not the right understanding. If, you're practi- if you practice in the right way, it does not matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. When you consider the compassion of the Buddha, how do you think the Buddha would feel about the four kinds of horses? He'd probably have more sympathy and compassion for the worst one than for the best one. When you are determined to practice with the great mind of a Buddha, you will find the worst horse is often the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly 
physically usually take more time to obtain the true way of practice, the actual feeling of practice, the marrow of practice. But those who find great difficulties in practicing will find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst horse, and the worst horse can be the best one. Isn't that comforting? (laughs) Unless you happen to be sitting in full lotus, no sweat. Um, We have so many different ideas of what good practice is or not good practice, and this is one of the views I, I want to Uh, explore this idea of how we're doing compared to everyone else. Have you seen it? Has it ever arisen? There you are doing walking meditation. Oh my God, look how slow they're going. What a great yogi. Or who do they think they're trying to impress? The mind can go anywhere, but this idea of of comparing against ourselves against someone else is is so deep seated. It's it's such a a deep rooted uh, conditioning in the mind. It's one of the last things to go. <clears throat> this uh, comparing and judging what in the um, in the Buddhist teachings is called the conceit of I am. And the word conceit here doesn't necessarily refer to being above or better than, but any kind of comparing. And you might feel comforted to know that uh, in this model of enlightenment, in the classical Theravadan model, there are four stages of enlightenment, the fourth one being a fully enlightened being. At the third stage of enlightenment, there's still the conceit of I am. There's still comparing in the mind. So if you have it, it just means you're no higher than third stage. (laughs) It's one way of looking at it. It's very, very deep, though. And I want to read to you passage from the Buddha. <clears throat> One who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior for that very reason disputes. But one who is unmoved under those three conditions for that person the notions equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. For one who is free from such views there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. (laughs) And you know who we annoy most of all, of course, is ourselves. It's amazing how we can get ourselves into a tizzy Believing one thought, and that's it. All kinds of ideas and opinions about ourselves and others, particularly in in this setting. How am I doing? Am I progressing in my practice? 
Am I regressing in my practice? How am I compared to everyone around me? What's the right way to practice? The amazing thing is that uh, even though we can be filled with doubt in our minds, when we have those kinds of thoughts, we take them to be real. If we would doubt those kinds of thoughts, everything would be fine, right? Isn't it a paradox that, you know, oh, I don't know if I'm doing right. Oh, I'm filled with doubt. You know, oh, that means that blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's right. You know? Why do we take those thoughts to be real and the other ones filled with doubt? <clears throat> I, I would suggest you switching your doubt to the doubting thoughts. <clears throat> We're sure we're right as, as long as we believe our thoughts. When we believe this, these mental fabrication, fabrications, there's dukkha. When we see through them, in a moment of seeing through them, ah, there's freedom. It, it's that simple. <clears throat> A number of years ago, I um, I took my uh, my mom to um, to hear Sylvia Borstein give a talk down uh, at her Wednesday morning sitting. It was great, and uh, I've told you about my mom already, and she's she's a real uh, she was a real character. And um, Sylvia gave this talk in which her new practice was saying to herself, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. You might try that one on as a practice. Well, my mother loved the talk. And I said, what would you think of that? She said, you know, that thought has never occurred to me before. (laughs) We kept up with that one for for the, the last few years of her life. Remember, Mom, could be wrong. You know? <laughs> it's a great one to try on, you know? When, whenever you're really spinning your wheels and getting into a tizzy, just try it. Oh, I could be wrong. You know? my, my basic uh, practice that I say to myself, uh, I've shared it with some people here, when I get caught, my particular reminder is what thought am I believing right now? It, it, anytime I remember, it works. The hard part is remembering. But when I remember, sometimes I'll ask, oh, what story am I believing right now? Because sometimes it's a full-on movie scenario that... Uh, Hollywood pay, would pay millions for. That's actually a line from my mom on, on her video. <clears throat> what thought am I believing right now? Because once you've seen how empty the thoughts are, I mean, that's the gift that we're all experiencing here. You see it again and again and again. How many times do you have to see it 
before you finally get it while you're in the middle of it. Oh, I'm just creating this story that I'm believing. In the moment you see it, how freeing, how freeing it is. It is. <clears throat> and notice the particular thoughts that you find yourself caught up in. You know, if I try harder, then I'll be a good yogi. If I sit longer, then I'll be doing practice well. If I slow down, that'll be the way to do it. If I just act naturally, that'll be the secret. You know? And certainly there's all kinds of skillful means and skillful strategies. And like I was saying a few nights ago, to really listen to where those voices are coming from. But to see that most of the thoughts, particularly if there's any kind of contraction, are generally not to be believed. <clears throat> a um, number of years ago, I was <clears throat> down in Yucca Valley and there was uh, somebody who I, I knew um, well who was sitting the retreat. Very generous, warm-hearted person. And she um, came in one one day and said, um, I cannot do metta at all. I know why I can't do metta. Because I was not loved when I was a child. And because I was not loved, I'm not able to love. And I said, really? Yeah. She said, yep. I, I know it's so. And I said, you were never loved. And she said, no. And she shared about her, her parents that were, you know, not there for her. And I, you know, I wasn't going to uh, deny that or dismiss that. And that's, that's a hard one. But there was something in me that knew or sensed that she had received love from somewhere to be such a loving, generous person. This is somebody who just likes to nourish everyone. And it, not just to, to be liked, but genuinely loved, uh, loves sharing. And I said, okay, if you weren't loved, that's, that's a big one. But I, I, before we go on, I just want to ask you, Think for a few moments, was there anyone ever in your life who you received love from and kindness when you were younger? I said, I'll just hang out. I'll wait here for a little while, you know. And she said, no, no. And then after about half a minute, she said, eyes kind of uh, lit up and said, oh, well, there was, maybe there was someone. I said, who? And she said, well, my brother, he always was good to me. And I said, oh, did he love you? And she said, well, he companioned me. <laughs> that was as much as she would go for. And then she let it in that she really was loved by her brother and then she started thinking of a few other people 
And it was in that moment where she busted that self-image of herself, something broke. This was now about 20, over 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago. And we both return to that moment uh, when we see each other because she had been holding that story about herself for most of her life and she then opened up to really owning the fact that not only was she loved but she was very lovable and she could love Uh, and she uh, has done lots of practice since, a very dedicated practitioner who gives her love so freely. But that's still not to um, diminish the fact that uh, we can get stuck in these stories and these views, and they're painful for us. And that is the price of mindfulness, that you can't, you can't pretend that you don't know any better. And also, when you take a look at your mind, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of humbling. Annie Lamott has this, this line, she says, uh, she say, my mind is a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. <laughs> <clears throat> How many times have you realized that you were lost in a reality that you were sure was true? How many times have, have, have you seen it? Every time you go through, through one of the, the sign curves and there you go, you were down in the, in, in the depths for a while and then you come out the other end and you look back and say, oh wow, where was I? And then you say, wow, I finally got clear. Cool. And then you go down again, you say, oh, I know this is true. How many times do you have to go through that before you see? And then, I can't believe I got hooked so badly. You know, When will I ever learn? Or what's worse is, while we're in the middle of it, we might even get a sense that we're creating a prison for us. You know, you come into an interview and probably the person on the other end will maybe uh, give another reality check. Are you sure that thought is true? You know, is there a, perhaps another way to hold your reality that's, that's not a hell realm? Um, <laughs> <clears throat> just a, a little, a gentle invitation. You know? And even though you know, you still find yourself caught, which is the most humbling of all. Oh my God, you know. I know better, but here I am caught in it. And, and to be really um, honoring the fact that not only does does our mind create reality, but our bodies also. 
are familiar with that reality. And so we, we get locked in a, a, even a, a visceral feeling of that reality. And the contraction can just be like home. That's so familiar. And it, it might be new territory to, to go out of that. It's, it can be scary. This has come up a number of times. Who am I without my, my suffering? Who am I without my neuroses? Ramdas says that after all, all these decades of practice, he still has his neuroses, but he's just become a connoisseur of his neuroses. And if you can become a connoisseur, oh yeah, there's that one. There's tape 17, uh, not worthy to be on this planet. Um, and seeing it, there's some freedom in it. <clears throat> so I, I wanted to f- share with you <clears throat> a few possibilities of uh, a few attitudes in working with this particular one, and then I want to share some other views that we can we can get caught in. <clears throat> one is. Um, It can be so humbling to see our minds. I was speaking to somebody else, uh, somebody today or yesterday, that being humbled can lead to either humiliation or humility. And there's a big difference between the two. But rather than feeling lousy that you've seen it again and again, oh, there I am stuck again and again. Just a little flip of perspective on the fact that you're seeing it. And I love this Pema Chodron line that uh, I read uh, uh, a few years ago. This is a great practice. You ready? Take delight in that which sees the dukkha. Take delight in that which sees the dukkha. Instead of focusing on the fact, oh, there's that dukkha again. Can't believe I got lost. God, I'll never get out of this. It's, oh, I see you. Fantastic. It's like the Buddha saying, I see you, Mara. The Buddha isn't freaking out because Mara's come and visited him. He just sees, oh, I see you. And in fact, you know, I, I'm sure everybody knows about Mara coming to visit the Buddha just before he was enlightened. Well, also in, um, in one of the collections, the Samyutta Nikaya, there's a number of um, short vignettes where Mara comes and visits the Buddha after he's enlightened. Not just before. After he's enlightened. And one of these, he comes and he says um, something like, you, know, you call yourself an ascetic? You call yourself a renunciate? You're sleeping f- four hours a night. What kind of a wimp are you? you know? And the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. And Mara kind of slinks away. That's... You know? a lot of those similar, in that similar vein. If Mara can come and visit the Buddha, 
cut yourself a little slack. It's not the fact that you have those thoughts. It's, It's freeing to realize I can see it. Oh, that's what the mind is doing. Ah. And if you take the light in the fact that you're seeing it, instead of judging yourself for having it, when you judge yourself for having it, you just compound the problem. And, you know, the, 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 the famous teaching of the second arrow on top of the first one, the first arrow, oh, this is painful. And then the second one is, I'm, such, I'm so pathetic for having this painful feeling and you compound it with a judgment. You don't have to do that. In fact, taking delight in that which sees the dukkha. Oh, I see it. And every time you can see it with that kindness and that compassion, you're not feeding the contraction. And there is freedom. So what I... What I often say is, uh, be amazed and amused at the mind. It's a great attitude to take. Having a sense of humor makes a big difference when you're doing this. Huge. Because then you can be in on the joke instead of the butt of the joke. (laughs) And if you can... Switch from, oh God, look at my mind, to, oh, look at how the mind works. Look at that. Look at how the mind works. Amazing. Then there's a lightness about it. Then you're not taking taking it so personally. Like a guy was talking the other night about unentangled knowing. This is unentangled knowing. This is one dimension of unentangled knowing where you know that the mind has just created something that it got hooked in. And the unentangled part is just seeing it clearly. Oh, that's what's happening. And it's available every moment that you remember as uh, one uh, one retreatant here has been reminding herself it's just a half breath away it's just a half breath away isn't have you seen that where in a moment you just wake up oh wow I was lost ah just a half breath away doesn't matter how long you've been gone or where you've been gone, where, where, what depths you've been gone to. In one moment, ah, here I am. I, I like the, uh, the image that I like is like pressing the clear, clear button on a calculator. You know, it doesn't matter how complicated the numbers get, even past the E. You press that clear, that C button, whoosh, ah, fresh start. Here we are again. Isn't that cool? That's a moment of mindfulness, of unentangled knowing where you just see, oh, the mind was doing its thing and here's freedom here. Just one thought away. The corollary to that is that no matter how clear you are, 
getting lost is just one moment away. So we got to be, you know, tricky. This is tricky. There's a, a, a oops. There's a, a line in uh, in uh, India that I love. Even a 93-year-old saint isn't safe. Even a 93-year-old saint, just one thought away, hey, I'm a saint. (laughs) Watch out. So it's kind of a binary function. You're either here or you're lost. And when you're lost, ah, half breath away, come back to here. That's it. One thing that this... um, requires and is um, supported by is another very um, key instruction that I want to offer you. Don't try to figure it out. That's one of the most important instructions that I can offer. Like the other day when somebody asked about why and the word why, and I said the word why is is dangerous. Not that it's never useful. Of course, it's good to reflect and kind of understand at times, particularly, you know, with with a friend or when there's some kind of uh, space around things. But if the word why is at, is is asked with any kind of contraction in the mind, like why is this happening? Watch out. And so not figuring out to just simply come right back here into the present moment and let go of the analysis. Ah, here we are again, pressing the, the clear button on the calculator. This is from somebody... Um, who did her uh, first retreat. She was on her first retreat and she was really spinning her wheels, going around and around and was having a really hard time of it. And I kept on encouraging this advice. Near the end of the retreat, she finally got it. And this is what she wrote. The one thing that is indelibly in my brain is finally getting you don't have to figure it out. Now that would never have registered in my mind before as an option. Yesterday I was walking and struggling in my brain thinking round and round and this voice came into my head that said you don't have to figure it out. And I stopped and closed my eyes and asked myself, what is true right now in this moment? And what was true was the rising and falling of my breath and various body sensations coming and going, and the rest will balance itself out in its own time, I thought to myself. And I resumed my walking. What a revelation! It's so simple. It's not in the analysis, it's in the letting go of the analysis that you just come right back to here and see how things are. There's a line in uh, the Thirds in Patriarch that I love. He says, um, 
Stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. Isn't that so? When you let go of this discursive mind and just come into the truth, the mind opens up, there's space enough for wisdom to shine through. Another, besides not figuring out, is to be curious, but not with an analytical mind, but just investigate how it works. Somebody was saying they were looking at their obsessive mind. And instead of being frustrated by it, just getting into the possibility of, oh, what, how does an obsessive mind work? And in that kind of curiosity, there's a kind of interest where you're not taking it personally. You might see that that keeps on being the, the key to not take it personally. And I, you know, when I get caught, I might say something like, if it's obsession, oh, obsessive Buddha, that's what's going on. Or frightened Buddha, that's what's here. Not, oh, I'm so, such a fearful person. That's, oh, frightened Buddha. <clears throat> Another view that we can have that I, I want to uh, stress that we can often get into, it happens so commonly in interviews, <clears throat> it comes up anyway, is thinking that you're the only one that gets yourself stuck in the places that you get stuck in. And everybody else is sitting here like a Buddha, clear, or certainly not with your particular flavor of neuroses, or to the extent that you have it. This is really taking it personally. It's not true. This is not true. And one of my um, uh, favorite teachings of the Buddha, uh, it, it's, a, it's a practice attitude that I have. He says in this, this one discourse, in this fathom-long body, the whole of life is revealed. You know, the, ca- the suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, the path leading to the end of suffering. In this fathom-long body, the Dharma is revealed. The fathom-long, six feet, you know, give or take a foot or so. In this fathom-long body, this is the laboratory that you have been issued to understand the human experience. And to the extent that you see it as a field of exploration, it gets kind of interesting. Instead of oh, woe is me, it's, oh, how does it work? You know, and I, I, um, I sometimes think of Grey's Anatomy, you know, the, the book, not the TV series, but there's a book, Grey's, uh, Grey's Anatomy, that just describes how the human body works. And it's pretty much, given that we all have our unique variations, it's pretty much the same principles. That's why, you know, doctors can go in and, and, uh, and understand what's going on because they've seen it in so many other bodies. Oh, this is pretty much how it works. Well, the Buddha 
was a kind of master physician for seeing how the mind works. Oh, this is how it gets caught. This is how it can become free. And you're not so different than everybody else. Just imagine when you get really stuck in your own stew, what it's like to reflect on the millions and millions of people who right in this moment are getting stuck in the same way. And if you just throw in how many people are believing your thoughts, then it ups to you know, billions and billions of people. Because most everybody is walking around believing their thoughts. I, I said that in one of the Brahma Viharas. You know, we are all walking around in our own reality that we are absolutely sure is true. I, I mentioned in, in that Brahma Vihara uh, about uh, the Dalai Lama's teaching that if somebody is doing something that is upsetting to you, understand they're not doing it generally to upset you. It's just that their internal reality is intersecting with your internal reality in a way that does not match your hopes and expectations. But we are all walking around with our internal reality and the freedom comes in seeing, oh, that's what most everybody is caught up in. How wonderful to see it. That feeling of not being alone makes all the difference in the world. And that's, that's where compassion is a natural byproduct of looking at our own dukkha. When you see it enough, you see, oh yeah, how easy it is for the mind to get lost. And hopefully you start to see it when other people do strange things. Oh, they're just lost like I, like I can get sometimes. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> although there's a commonality to the way the mind works, I also want to address another um, mm, idea that we can have, and that is that um, our way is uh, our way of uh, opening to the world and opening to life is um, the way that everybody else does. And um, for this, I want to share with you uh, a teaching that uh, I've found really helpful on the different kinds of temperaments for practice that people can have. We're not all alike in temperament, even though the the mechanisms and the way we get caught and the way we can get free uh, are pretty much universal. The five hindrances, the seven factors of enlightenment and all the various lists. Um, it can be confusing when you see someone practicing and and the comparing mindsets in and thinking, oh, that's the right way to do it. Or when you think my way is the right way to do it. Many years ago, um, 
I was sitting a retreat. This is in uh, 1981, and I was sitting a, th- a three-month course, and um, my wife Jane uh, was sitting too. And the two of us were sitting together, and we've been together. We went uh, as a uh, a couple. Didn't say anything during the the retreat. <clears throat> Wrote a note or two, but in those days they didn't have strict. Rules against notes, um, but um, but anyway, we sat, and before we sat, um, I was wanting to. Um, I had done uh, a couple of longer retreats before. This was her first, and I was um, wanting her to to really understand the best way to practice. <laughs> Big mistake. And I, you know, just had found a lot of value in um, just really going for it, noting every single moment I could, and and just being as full on the jets as I could. That was not so helpful for her, <clears throat> and in fact. <clears throat> You know, I was just saying, hey, this is this is the way it's worked for me. But thinking, you might try this too. And um, she uh, tried to do it that way and ended up um, uh, needing to take some medication for a, a pre-ulcer condition that was happening. <clears throat> and Joseph kept on saying, that's his way. Just do it your way. Right? <clears throat> and she, it was... It was both. Uh, it was a revelation after the retreat for both of us. In fact, at, from that point on, I uh, became so um, attuned to acknowledge there's so many different ways to practice. There's not a one right way and a one temperament. And she uh, got into really listening to herself and trusting herself instead of thinking that I knew better, which had its downsides, you know. <laughs> but it was good in the long run. Um, anyway, there are different sources <coughs> of motivation and different temperaments that I wanted to share with you um, because you might, it, it might help give a perspective that there's no one fixed view on how one should practice. And, excuse me, these are, there's one list, it's, it's a lesser known list uh, that I've found helpful about these different sources of motivation or these different um, ways that our practice can be fueled. And this is a list called the four idipadas. I D D H I P A D A. The four idipadas, or um, bases of success, or bases of power. <clears throat> and it's actually the one, uh, the, the one part of a bigger list a list of lists. You've heard most of the other ones, the 37. Um, uh, qualities of awakening, which include the Eightfold Path, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, 
the five faculties, the four wise efforts I spoke of the first um, uh, talk, four foundations of mindfulness, five powers which the five faculties become, and then there's these four idipadas or bases of success. And they talk about the different um, qualities and temperaments that, that we can go into uh, in our practice. <clears throat> and I also want to say that at different times we can be motivated in different ways and it's, it's not so neat that, oh, this is, this is one, this is my way and the other one isn't. We're a combination, but you might find one or another being more um, uh, your your way of um, of practicing and what comes naturally to you. So I'll mention them uh, briefly. <clears throat> the first one is, uh, and the word idi, idi is kind of like the word siddhi, S-I-D-D-H-I, which is power. You know, somebody has siddhis, they have powers. So this is the Pali, an idi pada, um, basis of power. <clears throat> the first one is called Chanda Idipada. And Chanda is um, uh, translated as zeal or enthusiasm. <clears throat> and uh, just a, a real desire, a kind of um, enthusiasm and excitement and uh, kind of um, fascination, just wanting to really learn um, which is probably uh, as much as anything, this is my, my natural uh, way that, you know, I, I mentioned about the birthday card, the, you know, the, the fascination and that sense of wonder. Wow, look at that. When I was, when I was a kid, you ever, you ever look at um, a shaft of sunlight through through window and you look up close and there's all the dust dancing I used to spend a fair amount of time when I was a kid, and if somebody said, well, what are you looking at? It doesn't sound so exciting. Oh, I'm watching dust. But, uh, <laughs> but it can be really fascinating. Anything can be fascinating if you look carefully enough, and probably you've touched that even if this isn't your particular temperament. But um, if you have that kind of um, more passionate kind of uh, a personality, then it can be very, um, uh, a great source of just wanting to understand. Like that uh, example I gave the, the other night, and Joseph saying the tip of the iceberg. Oh, it's like the tip of the iceberg. You know? Yeah. And it, if you have that, if that comes naturally to you, it's a wonderful <coughs> um, source of energy. You just want to discover just for the fun of it. I find it helpful to have the attitude of practice. I, I, I might have mentioned this before. To make it like a game. Oh, let's see how mindful we can be this period. Or let's just check it out just for the fun of it. What is the breath really like? <clears throat> and that kind of passion, that was the thing that actually uh, got me to, to practice um, when I 
it was a turning point in my, my early on in my practice, the first summer of, of um, hearing the Dharma uh, at Naropa Institute. And I came in one day uh, and I was wearing my New York Knicks t-shirt. And I was a season ticket holder to the New York Knicks. Some of my most intense moments in my life happened in Madison Square Garden. And I was sitting there and I just remembered that I had my Knicks shirt on. I'm not a Knicks fan, by the way, these days. I'm a Warriors fan, but still a basketball fan. And I thought, oh, gosh, what if I go to a a game and uh, I don't really have the same enthusiasm? And I got, I mustered up the the courage to speak to Joseph for the first time. And I said, uh, excuse me. And I was kind of in awe of him. But uh, I said, I, I, I want to ask you something that, that's kind of an important question to me. Uh, I'm a season ticket holder. And, uh, <laughs> uh, am I going to be going to Madison Square Garden and say, um, nice shot, Frazier. <laughs> Good pass, Havlicek. No matter what side they're on. Because I don't know if I'm ready to sign up for it. You know, like that. And Joseph gave great answer, as he often, as he usually did. He said, you'll still feel the passion probably, but you'll get over a loss sooner. I said, okay, I'm in. I'm going for it. Anyway, if you have that kind of a, an enthusiasm, if that's your style, great. If you don't, it's okay. It's not the only way. And you might have heard me say that, and you say, I just, that's not me, you know, works for him, but I just can't get it up for that. That's the first, Chanda Idipada. Another of these Idipadas is, uh, the second one is called Virya Idipada, which, and Virya usually means energy. <clears throat> and what it means in this instance is a willingness to make the effort no matter what. A willingness to endure hardship, to just be there uh, with a constancy and a determination, a resolve, like aditana is a perfection of resolve. This is the Buddha who had, probably had all of these, but this was particularly one that, that he had in spades. This is what he said. <clears throat> looking, looking back, he was talking about how he approached practice. If the end is attainable by human effort, I will not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, human exertion. Wow. You might not have that kind of a, <laughs> a determination. And don't, don't uh, downgrade yourself if you don't. But if you're the kind of person that says, you know, I'm going to hang in there with this. 
that's, if you can do it with a light and loving touch, it can be very skillful. There's a kind of courage that we can sometimes access and that some people have more naturally than others. It's wonderful. Ajahn Sumedho, who we've quoted uh, from, um, uh, I remember hearing a story of sitting in his kuti and uh, there were bees in his kuti. And after a while, he stopped trying to get rid of the bees and there he was, let them sting me. And they stung him. It's okay, I can be here with that. Wow. <clears throat> so, if this is your kind of a, a temperament, <coughs> then value it and know what your limits are. You don't want to push beyond your limits. Then, then it's not so healthy. You want to be really wise with your aditana, with your determination, with your virya idipada. Uh, another uh, of these is called uh, Vamamsa Idipada, which um, is a word that uh, translates as investigation, but it's really um, having a sense of urgency. Like, I don't want to waste this time. And maybe you, uh, you get in touch with that samvega, that... I spoke of earlier the the urgency you don't this is such an important precious time I don't I, I want to not just be caught up in again and again in uh, in 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 the same old futile looking for happiness in all the wrong places and particularly <clears throat> this some Vega can see how how valuable it is, this human birth. The, the Buddha saying, you know, we're like children playing with our toys in the attic and not realizing that the house is on fire. He was big on this, wake up. And uh, you perhaps know in, in Tibetan uh, teachings, a very major teaching, the four mind changers that get us inspired to use our time, the preciousness of a human birth. It's so rare. You might say, rare, there's seven billion of these, you know, what's so rare about it? One fact that I, I got from uh, Wes Nisker's book, Buddha's Nature, a really great book, there are more living organisms in your mouth right now than have been human beings since the beginning of time. It's rare to be born a human. And it's said that this is the optimal place to wake up. So when you realize that, oh, I want to make good use of this time. Or the fact of impermanence and death. You only have a finite amount of time on, in, on this planet. Don't waste it. Or the shortcomings of samsara, that samvega seeing, oh, this is not where I'm going to be finding true happiness. Let's see if there's something else that can lead me to freedom. And when you really are inspired by that possibility, you really practice. 
or uh, understanding karma, that in every moment you are sowing the seeds for more suffering or more happiness. Which direction do you want to go in? So that's what this vamamsa idipada is. This sense of urgency that comes with seeing the bigger picture. <clears throat> and then finally, uh, chitta idipada. Chitta, which usually is translated as heart, mind, like Carol said the other day, our mind or our heart, chitta. <clears throat> but in this particular uh, approach to practice, you have fallen in love with the Dharma. Where you've had a taste of truth for yourself or you've touched a real purity of heart that you can't, you can't deny. And it's like a, a moth flying to a flame. You can't turn back. <clears throat> and I'll share with you um, one story before I end about this and maybe get you in touch with your own um, citta idipada. <clears throat> when I was first uh, getting into practice many a number of years ago, some of you have heard this story, and I was... Um, um, seeing if I could study with Ramdas, who was having this scene in uh, in New York, and it was a a devotional scene, you know, a Hindu scene, <clears throat> and uh, I was speaking with him, having a an interview with him to see if if the class it was a small class, about thirty thirty five people, if if it was right for me, and I said, you know, I'm really into Buddhist practice. And uh, and then he said, uh, well, you know, maybe it could work out. But let me ask you, um, uh, how do you how do you feel about uh, Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And I said, I like Jesus. <laughs> I don't know if I love Jesus, but I I really love his I like his teachings. And he said, but do you love? I said, I don't know if I love him that way. And he said, well, what about Krishna? Do you love Krishna? I said, I like Krishna. <laughs> Just that expression of celebration and, and loving life. But I don't know if, I'm, if I love Krishna like you maybe are hoping I can. And then he said, well, what about God? Do you love God? And I said, well, you know, Ramdas, I was brought up... Um, Jewish, and my idea of God was uh, maybe it was from a Bible book that I, I got a picture book when I was very young. But God was this very powerful, masculine figure with a beard and a book and a pen, and saying you're going to have a good day and you're not, and you're going to have a bad day. And it more put the fear of God into me than the love of God. So uh, I translate the word God. Um, when I hear that, I think of um, the Dharma. Um, just the perfection of it all. And I want to say, I, I do honor the word God. And as I, now I understand it, God stands for that which cannot be named. But that was my impression of God. Anyway, I said, when I hear God, I, I think of the word Dharma. 
And, um, and then he said, well, do you love the Dharma? And with that one, I said, oh, yeah. He said, you're sure? I said, oh, yeah. And then he said, have you ever told the Dharma you loved it? <laughs> I said, no. He said, well, go ahead. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, tell the Dharma you love it. Say, I love you, Dharma. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, I'll say it with you. Right? And I felt completely like a jerk saying, I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. And I said, I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. And by the, about the fourth time, he said, keep on saying it. And by the fourth time, I just um, felt it. I love you, Dharma. And um, tears started coming down my cheek. And he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. <laughs> and I think it's something that um, we all here, in one way or another, touch this Chitta Idipada. You wouldn't be sitting here for a month, most of you, um, if you hadn't been touched by something really profound and to acknowledge that that's a great source of motivation and fuel for practice. And when you don't, when it's not there, that's okay too. You, you, you can't make it happen and conjure it, but just to quiet down and remember how much you love this practice, how much you love the truth, how much you love the mystery or whatever you call it. <clears throat> so those are the four different idipadas, different ways, different temperaments that one can have at different times. And it doesn't look the same for everyone. So you can let go of the views you have about what's right approach, what's the, the right way to practice, how am I doing compared with others, and just stay connected to what's true for you, but let go of believing in the views. Just come right into this moment and love this moment of your life. So we'll sit for a moment. Thank you for your kind attention.